Welcome back, everyone, to episode number three, Ball with Tyler Todd. Thank you for listening in. We got a big episode ahead of us. It is Friday, jam-packed episode full of good stuff, so we're going to jump right into it. For starters, we're going to do MLB news. Yadier Molina, the nine-time All-Star, two-time champ, nine-time Gold Glover, is returning to St. Louis on a one-year deal. So all you St. Louis Cardinal fans should be rejoicing to the heavens because your boy Yadi is coming back to St. Louis. Now, this is something I also wanted to chat about. Um, Anthony Kastrovins of MLB Network did a top duos in the MLB right now, and he listed six, but I decided to do the top three because those, I think, out of the six, they're the most appealing, at least to me. So, leading off from that list, number one is the Angels duo of Mike Trout and Anthony Rendon. So, I'm going to break down the slashes for each um, each player in each deal. So, 2020 slash for Rendon, his batting average was 286. His on-base percentage was 418, and his slugging percentage was 497. So Rendon had a pretty solid 2020 season. He was getting on base constantly, and he actually was hitting the crap out of the ball. Now, if we are to look at Mike Trout, arguably the best player in baseball, eight-time All-Star, eight-time Silver Slugger, three-time AL MVP, he also had a solid year. A 281 batting average, a 390 on-base percentage, and a 603 slugging. So he also had a very effective year getting on base, and he destroyed the baseball. Now, moving on to the second team on the list, my least favorite team in the MLB, the LA Dodgers. And their duo consists of Mookie Betts and Cody Bellinger. Here is Mookie's 2020 slash. He had a 292 batting average, a 366 on base percentage, and a 562 slugging which is a very good year from Mookie. He finished second in the NL MVP voting, and he has won that award previously, but in the American League with the Red Sox. Now, here is Bellinger's 2020 slash. He had a very abysmal 2020 COVID season. A 239 batting average, a 333 on-base percentage, and a 455 slugging. Even though it was a low season for him, he is still an MVP-level player. He has won the award previously in 2018. Now at number three, the best duo in baseball, Fernando Tatis and Manny Machado, the San Diego Padres. Let's go, baby. Now here's Nando's 2020 slash. He had a 277 batting average, a 366 on base percentage, and a 571 slugging. At one point, Fernando Tatis was leading the NL MVP race, but near the end of the season, his stats kind of dipped down. But he still finished fourth in the NL MVP voting at the end of the year, and he just earned the honors for the MLB Cover Show athlete just recently. So he is one of the next up-and-coming bright young stars in the MLB. So definitely be on the lookout for him. Now, his buddy in this, Manny Machado, here's his 2020 slash. A 304 batting average, a 370 on base percentage, and a 580 slugging. This is much better than last year where he had a batting average that was below 240. And especially for a guy that's being paid $330 million over 10 years. So this was a huge year for him. It seriously was an MVP type year for him. And he also finished third in the NL MVP race. So... Any NL West fan out there, be on the lookout for not just that duel, but be on the lookout for that Dodgers duel as well. The NL West is going to be freaking crazy this year. Moving on from MLB's top duos, we are now going to look some spicy trade speculation, some free agency splashes going on. The New York Mets are looking to upgrade at third base, and man, it's getting heated. New York has talked to the Cubs about their third baseman, Chris Bryant, and the Reds about their third baseman, Eugenio Sanchez, during the offseason per the New York Post. 
Looking at the Mets' current third baseman, J.D. Davis, he is a very productive player offensive-wise, but during the COVID season, he hit only 249, had six homers, and 19 RBIs. So, not too good. But, if we look at the year before that, where they played actually a full season, he hit 307, 22 homers, and 57 RBIs, all career highs for J.D. Davis. So, very productive guy. He just had a down year in the COVID season. So, if we're looking at it from the Mets' perspective, what makes the Bryant trade nice is Bryant's solid fielding. Davis, to put it lightly, is a liability at the hot corner. His defensive run saved above average at third base was negative 9 in 2019 and negative 8 in 2020 per baseball reference. So, even though Bryant has had a rough couple past years, he is still a three-time All-Star, an NL MVP, and a World Series champ. He would be immediate upgrade over Davis. Suarez, on the other hand, has become one of the best power hitters at his position. We're going to look at some of his stats from the past three seasons. In 2018, he hit 34 bombs. 2019, he hit 49 bombs. And then to go along with that, he hit 103 RBIs. So that is extremely productive. Oh, and then even in the COVID season, had 15 homers and 38 RBIs in just 57 games. So there's a little thorn in his side, just like Davis. He also isn't the best fielder, having a negative four defensive run saved above average, which is still lower than Davis, but he's... He, He's ahead of him in that category, but still, there's that little pinch right there that could be a thorn in the side of the New York Mets if they're going to pursue Eugenio. But I think the trade's awesome. I think the Mets should make an offer to Bryant or Eugenio because looking at the defensive stats, you need to have a guy at third base who has an effective glove. Yes, a bat is nice, but the hot corner is called the hot corner for a reason. you got to have an effective glove at third base to make plays and everything. Okay, everyone, that is all we got for MLB news this week. Moving on to NBA scores for this week. Let's start with Game 1, Milwaukee Bucks versus the Denver Nuggets. The Bucks ended up winning this one 125-112. to Their leading scorer, Giannis Antetokounmpo, had 30 points, 9 rebounds. Second leading scorer, Chris Middleton, had 29 points, 8 rebounds, 12 assists. He had a double-double. And the player to look out for this game that I highlighted, DiVincenzo, he had 13 points, 7 rebounds, 2 assists. The Nuggets leading scorer Nikola Jokic had 35 points, 12 rebounds, 6 assists. He also had a double-double, and he is currently second in the NBA MVP race right now. Will Barton, their second leading scorer, 24 points, 1 rebound, 4 assists. And their third leading scorer, Paul Millsap, had 14 points, 5 rebounds, 1 assist. Moving on to the team stats, Milwaukee shot 50.6 from the field, 40% 40% from three, and 86% from the free throw line. Now, I think this is where they won the game. They had a huge edge in the offensive game for rebounds, 50 total rebounds. They out-rebounded the Nuggets by 12 and by three on the offensive board. 24 assists, seven blocks, seven steals, 10 turnovers, 40 points in the paint, and 19 personal fouls. Now, the Nuggets team stats, they shot 43% from the field, lower than Milwaukee. They shot 41% from three, a little bit higher than Milwaukee. And they also beat Milwaukee in the free throw percentage line, shooting 93.8. But this is where they lost the game. 38 total rebounds and only eight offensive. So simply put, they weren't not getting the ball enough to put up shots. Milwaukee dominated in that category and was able to score more because of that. To go along with that, the Nuggets had 22 assists, four blocks, five steals, 9 turnovers, 14 points in the paint, and 15 personal fouls. 
So the Nuggets were behind in blocks, steals, one less turnover, same amount of points in the paint. So it was a def- it definitely wasn't a defensive game because it was a very high-scoring game. But I think the thorn in their side definitely for this game was the amount of rebounds that they were not able to get. Looking at game two of this week, the Cleveland Cavaliers and the Phoenix Suns. The Suns won this game by a mere six points, just 119 to 113. The Cavaliers leading scorer Colin Sexton had 23 points, two rebounds, five assists on 58.3% shooting. Darius Garland had 17 points, two rebounds, seven assists on 33% shooting. Definitely need better shooting percentage from him. Andre Drummond had 15 points, 14 rebounds, two assists on 66.7% shooting. Very productive night for him from scoring-wise and rebound-wise. Now, the Suns' leading scorer, Devin Booker, a season high for him, 36 points, five rebounds, and eight assists to go along with 51.8% shooting. Mikael Bridges had 22 points. Four rebounds, five assists on 80% shooting. He only missed two shots in the entire game, which is awesome. And then their last scorer, DeAndre Ayton, had 15 points, 16 rebounds, two assists on 63.6% shooting from the field. He also had a double-double. Looking at our second game of the week, the Boston Celtics versus the Utah Jazz. The Jazz ended up winning this game 122-108, to keeping their first place bout in the Western Conference. The Celtics' leading scorer, Jalen Brown, finished with 33 points, 8 rebounds on 60% shooting. Jason Tatum, he had 23 points, 4 rebounds, 4 assists on 35% shooting. Not very good. And then Daniel Tice had 15 points, 4 rebounds on 63% shooting. The Jazz leading scorer, Donovan Mitchell, had 36 points, 4 rebounds, and 9 assists to go with 52.1% shooting. Joe Ingles, who was now playing off the bench, had 24 points, 3 rebounds, 6 assists, and 42% shooting from the field. Very productive for him coming off the bench. And their starting center, Rudy Gobert, had 18 points, 12 rebounds, and 3 assists on 89% shooting. He finished with a double-double. This was also a cool stat. Bogdanovich and Clarkson were also in double digits for points. So they had help from the bench and their starters in every asset. Looking at the Celtics team stats, they shot 44.2% from the field, 44.8% from three, and 82.6% from the free throw line. So all pretty solid stats for the game. They had 35 total rebounds. 11 of those were offensive. 18 assists, two blocks, two steals. Eight turnovers, 46 points in the paint, and 25 personal fouls. So they were getting the Jazz to the line a lot during this game. Looking at the Jazz team stats, they shot 47.6% from the field, 37.5% from three, 88.9% from the free throw line. You would like to see that three-point percentage come up a little bit. They had 41 total rebounds. Ten of those were offensive. 28 assists, seven blocks, four steals, 10 turnovers, 38 points in the paint, and 22 personal fouls. So the Celtics definitely edged them in the paint category, but I think they gave more fouls, which gave the the Jazz more of an opportunity to get to the free throw line and punish them in that area. Looking at game three this week, the most exciting game of this week, the Milwaukee Bucks versus the Phoenix Suns. The Phoenix Suns edged the Bucks just by one point, 125 to 124. It was a shootout of a game. Giannis Antetokounmpo of the Bucks finished with 47 points, 11 rebounds, and 5 assists on 65.2% shooting. Holy moly, he freaking killed it that game. 
Chris Middleton had 18 points, 5 rebounds, 11 assists on 41.2% shooting. Another double-double for him. Bryn Forbes had 10 points, 6 rebounds, and 3 assists on 66.7% shooting. Yes, the shooting is nice. He only shot the ball a little bit, but still, it's nice to see a productive night from Forbes. Looking at the Suns' leading scores, Devin Booker once again in that category. 30 points, 6 rebounds, 3 assists on 52.4 shooting. Absolutely killing it this year. And the savvy veteran, one of my favorite players, Chris Paul, finished with 28 points, 3 rebounds, 7 assists on 50% shooting. And their big center, DeAndre Ayton, on this list once again, 17 points, 7 rebounds on 70% shooting. They also, two players in double digits, Mikel Bridges, who I've mentioned before, with 15 points, and Frank Kaminsky, Frank the Tank, with 14 points. It was overall a very productive night from the Suns. They had a lot of help from some key rotational guys and also from their starters. Looking at the Bucks team stats, they shot 50.6% from the field, 43.2% from three, and 73.3% from the free throw line. They had 39 total rebounds, 10 of them were offensive, 23 assists, they had no blocks this game, 6 steals, 9 turnovers, 42 points in the paint, and 21 personal fouls. Looking at the Suns team stats, they shot 52.9% from the field, 48.4% from 3, and 72% from the free throw line. Man, I'm telling you, covering all these games, these guys need to work on their free throws, man. It's the easiest shot in the game. We got 72%, 73, we had 68 one game, 88% was the only the best one we had. So come on, guys. It's the easiest shot to make. You guys are freaking pro athletes. Come on now. Moving on to the total rebounds, they had 47. 12 of them were offensive, 25 assists, 2 blocks, had 7 steals, 11 turnovers, 48 points in the paint, and 19 personal fouls. Out of the game so far, that was the most exciting one. At one point, the Suns were trailing by a lot, and they came back. And the Suns are that secret dark horse team that I think is going to make the playoffs and is going to be a threat in the playoffs. Rounding off our list of games, we have game four, the 76ers versus the Blazers. The Blazers ended up beating the perennial top team in the East by four points, 118 to 114. Joel Embiid, also a part of the NBA MVP race at the moment, had 35 points, 9 rebounds, 3 assists, and 2 blocks on 52% shooting. Ben Simmons had 23 points, 11 rebounds, 9 assists, 1 steal, and 1 block on 83.3% shooting. So talk about a productive night from him. Double-double and mixing it in with the in some defense with the steal and a block, man, getting after it. And their final score, Tobias Harris had 17 points, 6 rebounds, Five assists, one block, but only on a mere 33.3% shooting. So, leaning a little more productivity from Harris. Looking at the Blazers' leading scores, I mean, I'm not surprised at all. Our boy D. Lillard is in the first place slot. 30 points, two rebounds, seven assists, two steals, but on a freaking god awful 28.6% from the field. That happens from him, though, because he does shoot the ball up, but man, definitely needs to fix that for the next upcoming game. Carmelo Anthony, who came off the bench in this game, had 24 points and two rebounds, and he had 60% shooting, and he shot 80% from three. I am telling you, that man can still ball, man. He's so underrated. It's unbelievable. Now, Ennis Cantor, their third scorer, he wasn't the third leading scorer on their team, but I just want to discuss his impact because he was very impactful on the boards and point-wise. 10 points, 14 rebounds, and 2 assists on 41% shooting. That's pretty good from him considering that he plays a very minimal role on the team, but he's actually been stepping up as of lately, which has been nice for the team. 
Looking at the 76ers team stats, they shot 48.8% from the field and a garbage 22.2% from three. Six of 27. That is so crap, dude. Definitely need to fix that. They shot 82.8% from the free throw line. Pretty good. They had 54 total rebounds, 11 offensive boards, 20 assists, 6 steals, 5 blocks, 9 total turnovers, 50 points in the paint, and 20 personal fouls. Looking at the Blazers team stats, they had 43% from the field, 44.7 from 3, and a really good free throw percentage. The best one, actually, of the games I covered this week. 91.3% from the free throw line, only missed 2 that game. They had 50 total rebounds. 15 of them were offensive, 15 assists, 5 steals, 2 blocks, 8 total turnovers, 36 points in the paint, and 21 personal fouls. So if you look at the difference between the two, yes, the paint, the points in the paint were lower from the Blazers compared to the 76ers, 36 to 50. But if you look at the 3 points percentage compared to the Blazers' 3 point percentage, we had a 22% compared to 44%. So you had one team that was dominating in the paint, and you had one team that was dominating from the three. And I'm actually not surprised at all that it went this way because the 76ers are a kind of a drive, and that's it. They don't really do anything else. They're kind of just iso ball in the paint, get and beat the ball. The Blazers, however, are very unique in the sense that they have a lot of guys that can shoot the ball from three, mid-range, they can drive, slash, they are very productive in that area of their team. All right, moving on from the games, pretty sweet, but we got some upcoming action, baby. This is where it gets interesting. Some records being made and some good trade speculation. History being made in the NBA, Zach Levine and Kobe White became the first pair of teammates in the NBA history to both hit at least eight threes in a single game. Talk about productive. Levine finished the game with a season-high 46 points, seven rebounds, and four assists on 68% shooting. He was unguardable that game. Now, if you look at Kobe White, he finished with 30 points, two rebounds, and seven assists on 50% shooting. Now, the reason why they were so successful is because the Pelicans have struggled this year against the three, giving up the most three-point attempts, 41.3, and the most three points made in a game with 15.3. So if you take that stat, three points made in a game at 15.3, Kobe White and Zach Levine made 16, just the two of them combined. That's not been the rest of the team. So the Pelicans, man... You definitely need to figure out your three defense because it was abysmal in that game, and it's been abysmal all year. Checking out more history being made in the NBA. Carmel Anthony passes Oscar Robertson to take the 12th spot on the NBA all-time scoring list. He now only trails Hakeem Olajuwon by 255 points. I'm telling you, man, Melo is seriously so underrated, and he's had an underrated career. He was so dominant, so dominant in Denver. And when he went to New York, everyone thought it was going to be the craziest thing. And it was. He freaking performed in New York. But I'm telling you, if any had, if anybody had the privilege to watch him play in Denver with a Denver team that consisted of J.R. Smith, Allen Iverson, Kenyon Martin, and Nene, physically dominant team in the West. Like, my goodness. And Melo, that was when Melo played Melo's game. Post moves, his classic fadeaway Jimmy rebound the ball like crazy such a rad dude so 
I'm stoked that he's he's made it this far on the NBA all-time scoring list, and I hope he keeps passing because I feel like he's very underappreciated and he's still balling at his age. Okay, that was a mouthful. Moving on from NBA, NFL's up next, baby. The best stuff. Here we go. NFL QB free agency discussion. We got a lot of guys on this list to cover. First off, we got Mitchell Trubisky. Their prediction is he re-signs with Chicago. Honestly, they can have him. I've never been a fan of him. I think even Chicago fans aren't a fan of him, but they can just keep him in Chicago. Don't go anywhere near any other team. Second on the list, we have Dak Prescott. They assume that he's going to sign the tag with Dallas. I think they should. Even though he had that one productive year and then had a couple down years, I still think he is their future. He should not go anywhere else. Third on the list, we have Ryan Fitzpatrick, the journeyman himself. They predict that he is going to re-sign with Miami. I think he should because he can be that mentor for Tua. Even though Ryan Fitzpatrick has never been a Pro Bowl type quarterback, he's that veteran guy. He's been on God knows how many teams, so he can serve as that leader to Tua whenever he needs it. Looking at the fourth guy on our list, Jacoby Brissett, their predictions that he re-signs with Indianapolis. He backed up Phillip Rivers this year. It is very possible that he can take that leading role since Phillip Rivers also did retire. Jacoby Brissett has had a previous history with the New England Patriots where he did start a game at one point. He did play for that franchise, so a reunion would be pretty cool, but I think his best bet would be to stay in Indianapolis because it gives him the best chance to start. Now, looking at this one, this is probably the most my most favorite one on the list is Cam Newton. They predict that he's going to sign with the Washington football team. And, which is funny, because the Washington football team just re-signed their quarterback, Taylor Hitchke, to a two-year deal. So, that dynamic is going to be weird. Cam is a Panther, previously was a Panther. He was with the Patriots this year on a one-year deal. I could see the Patriots re-signing him because they have a very good system, but Cam is kind of a drama queen, so I don't know if he feels he should be in New England anymore. He wants to run his own team. He's just all over the place, but I think he's the most appealing aside from the Deshaun Watson sweepstakes. Now, rounding off the list, we have Jameis Winston. They predict that he's going to re-sign with New Orleans. He backed up Drew Brees this year, so now he is the clear-cut guy on that list. Aside from Taysom Hill, who was the other backup on the Saints, they feel that Jameis Winston can lead the team, even though he's the only guy in NFL to throw 30 touchdowns and 30 picks. He was very productive in college. He was productive in Tampa Bay. He, I think he just he just gets a bad rap. I think he, if he's put in the right system and he's in the right system in New Orleans where he can now get a fresh start again, I think he will have a very good opportunity to show that he actually is a very good pro-caliber quarterback. Looking at the Deshaun Watson sweepstakes, I predict that he's going to sign with Denver or a package deal for Carr with the Raiders. Now, the Raiders are saying that Carr is untouchable, but I think if you look at Deshaun Watson and the Texans, man, I think you'd be kind of silly not to trade Carr for the kind of player that Deshaun Watson is. So that's just my take. I think the Raiders should pursue him. If not, I think Denver should as well, even though I'm a Chargers fan. Drew Locke really hasn't been the answer just yet. They're still kind of betting on him to be the answer, but if they want immediate help, Locke can just sit back and learn from Deshaun Watson, even though they are both young. Deshaun Watson is that generational playmaker talent type guy at the quarterback position. Now, my most favorite news in NFL right now at the moment Pro Bowler left tackle Orlando Brown wants out of Baltimore and wants to play at his desired position at left tackle. Previously this year, the left tackle spot he had to move because the right tackle Ronnie Stanley got injured, so he was moved to the right tackle spot where he doesn't feel like he should be. So he wants a release, and he would like to play left tackle somewhere else. So, um, Chargers, Panthers, 
Make a splash, baby. Come on. Whoever need whoever needs O-line help immediately and proven O-line help, he's a two-time Pro Bowler, he will give you a major upgrade at that left tackle position. Okay, enough of the NFL trade rumors and speculation talk. I wanted to get a little bit more serious here, and I wanted to talk about Marty Schottenheimer, who just passed away this past week to Alzheimer's at the age of 77. Most of the time in sports, we focus on the talent in the field, the athletes. That's obviously why we watch the games. What we fail to remember is the coaching behind them. So many of the coaches helped to shape the athlete on and off the field. And this week, we lost Marty, which was very unfortunate. Marty may have never won a Super Bowl or even took his team to the Super Bowl, but his legacy will live on forever. So giving a little insight into Marty's life, he had five years experience as a player and 30 plus years as a head coach in the NFL. He is most notably known for his time in Kansas City as a head coach in San Diego as a head coach. In 2010, he was inducted into the Kansas City Hall of Fame. 2004 was his best year where he took home AP NFL Coach of the Year, PFW NFL Coach of the Year, Maxwell Club NFL Coach of the Year, and the UPI NFL Coach of the Year. And that was all with the San Diego Chargers. With the Kansas City Chiefs, before he got the job offer, the Chiefs were at a three-year playoff drought, and their head coach at the time, Frank Gans, had an abysmal record of 8-22-1 in just two seasons. He was gone after two. Marty came in this offseason and did this. He spent nine years with Kansas City from 89 to 1998, seven playoff appearances, three AFC West titles. He never reached the Super Bowl, but every season the Chiefs finished second or better in the AFC West. Also, a really cool stat that I found, he boasted an 18-3 record during his tenure against the longtime hated AFC West rivalry, the Oakland Raiders. 1993 was the farthest they got in the playoff race, which was the AFC chant game against the notorious Bills of the early 90s, who went to four straight Super Bowls and lost all four. So along with his coaching stats, I did want to highlight some players that he did coach for in Kansas City. So here is the first one. Nick Lowry was a three-time Pro Bowler, two-time first-team All-Pro, the Chiefs' all-time leader in field goals made at 329, and PATs at 479. Second on the list is Deron Cherry. He was a six-time Pro Bowler, five-time All-Pro, was a part of an extremely physical defense that Marty shaped in Kansas City. Looking at the third person on the list, Will Shields is a 12-time Pro Bowler, three-time first-team All-Pro, Walter Payton Man of the Year. He is a Hall of Famer, regarded as the best offensive lineman in Chiefs history. And this is the most notable one. I think it's so awesome. He was able to coach Derek Thomas, Hall of Famer, nine-time Pro Bowler, third-time first-team All-Team Pro, Walter Payton Man of the Year, Sacks leader in 1990, the 1989 Rookie of the Year. He's a part of the 100 Sacks Club. His numbers retired. He holds single-game record for Sacks with seven and owns all of these Chiefs franchise records. 41 forced fumbles, 126.5 sacks, 19 recovered fumbles, 3 career safeties, and 20 sacks in a single season. He is regarded as one of the greatest pass rushers to ever play the game and was a part of a very talented and mean Kansas City defense. Oh, and I will also add that that all of these players are all part of the Kansas City Hall of Fame. Moving on to San Diego, what he accomplished in San Diego. Marty was released from Kansas City after his nine-year tenure and joined the San Diego Chargers, bringing bringing with him the reputation of a leader, proven winner, and all-around good guy. In San Diego, he had two playoff appearances in his four years as their coach. 
Two-time AFC West Divisional champs. He won two titles with them. Boasted a 14-2 record in 2006 and one of the most decorated seasons in football history. The number one seed in the AFC and the best record in the NFL. Chargers had 11 Pro Bowlers selected that year. Here they are. Phillip Rivers, LaDainian Tomlinson, Sean Merriman, Marcus McNeil, Jamal Williams, Lorenzo Neal, Kasim Osgood, Antonio Gates, David Bin, Nick Hardwick, and Nate Canning. Unfortunately, in that 2006 season, they would fall short to the New England Patriots at home in the 2006 AC Divisional game. Just like I did with Kansas City, I also wanted to highlight some great players that he coached for in San Diego, which blows me away the talent that he had that he had availability to. The first one on the list is LaDainian Tomlinson, five-time Pro Bowler, three-time first-team All-Pro. He was the MVP in 2006, Offensive Player of the Year in 2006. He was the Walter Payton Man of the Year in 2006, two-time rushing leader in 2006 and 2007, three-time rushing touchdown leader in 2004, 2006, and 2007. He was a first ballot Hall of Famer. He has an NFL record for 28 rushing touchdowns in a single season, which is that 2006 season. 31 touchdowns in scrimmage, which is also that 2016 season. He also has 18 consecutive games with the touchdown, which is tied with Hall of Famer Lenny Moore. LT is also the third all-time touchdown holder with 162 touchdowns, the seventh time rusher and all-time rushing yards at 13,684, and second for all-time rushing touchdowns with 145. His 2006 season is one of the most dominant offensive performances we've seen in modern football. He is regarded as one of the best elusive and playmaking running backs football has ever seen. Now we look at our tight end, Antonio Gates. Eight-time Pro Bowler, three-time first-team All-Pro. He is the all-time leader in Chargers history for receptions with 955, receiving yards with 11,841, and touchdown receptions with 116. With those stats, he also ranks third all-time in those categories for all NFL tight ends. It is pretty insane that a former basketball from Kent State had that kind of career. He is now regarded as one of the best tight ends to ever play the game. Now, finishing off the list, our boy, Phillip Rivers, eight-time Pro Bowler, NFL Comeback Player of the Year in 2013, NFL Completions Percentage Leader in 2013, NFL Passing Yards Leader in 2010, NFL Passing Touchdown Leader in 2008, NFL Passing Rating Leader in 2008. He is the all-time passing leader in Chargers history with 59,000 yards, 271 yards, and 397 touchdowns. For NFL career records, he is fifth all-time for passing yards with 63,440 yards, fifth all-time for pass completions with 5,277, and fifth all-time passing touchdowns with 421. Insane to think that at one point, he was backing up Drew Brees, who is going to be another future Hall of Famer in San Diego before we sent Drew to NOLA after his soldier surgery. That gave Phil the chance to start, and the rest is history. He was absolutely dominant in San Diego. And also, let us not forget how talented the defense and offense was in 2006 for the Chargers. Quentin Jammer and Antonio Camardi were the starting cornerbacks, along with the help of Drayton Florence, Steve Gregory, Clinton Hart, Bawan Jew, and Marlon McCree. Now pair that with the D-line group that included Jamal Williams, Igor Olshansky, Luis Castillo, and many more. Looking at the linebacker group, it consisted of notable names such as Sean Merriman, Sean Phillips, Stephen Cooper, Matt Winhelm, Donnie Edwards, Tim Dobbins, and Marquise Harris. Looking at the offensive side of the ball, 
absolutely incredible. It included our running back, LT, who I've already mentioned, but also included Michael Turner, Darren Sproles, and Lorenzo Neal. Looking at the wide receiver group was also off the charts. We had Vincent Jackson, Malcolm Floyd, Antonio Gates, Keenan McCardell, and Eric Parker. And what even blows me away even more is our special teams was even good. Nate Kading was our kicker, David Bin was our long snapper, and Mike Cyphers was our punter. So very incredible, very incredible team. And Marty was just an incredible guy, and we will definitely miss Marty, but his legacy will live on in the NFL for years to come. Now, ending on a little more happier note, I just wanted to highlight the games coming up this weekend and a game today. The Grizzlies are playing the Lakers today. The Grizzlies are the ninth seed in the Western Conference at 10 and 10. They are looking to slide into that eight spot. Hopefully can make a playoff run this year. I think they can make it if they just keep playing the way they're playing with a little bit of improvement. And the Lakers are second in the Western Conference at 20-6. and six. They are chasing the Utah Jazz who have playing lights out this year. And now looking at the second game, which is tomorrow, the Indiana Pacers are fifth in the Eastern Conference with a 13-13 and record. And they are facing the Atlanta Hawks who are eighth in the Eastern Conference at 11-13. and This is what I was bringing up earlier when I say the Western Conference is way more competitive than the Eastern Conference. A team that is in fifth place is 13-13. and That is not good. Looking at the last game, the Spurs versus the Hornets, the San Antonio Spurs are 6 in the West at 14-11, and 11, and the Charlotte Hornets, surprising to see them here at this spot because they've been bad for many years, they are the seventh seed at 12-14. and 14. That game, I think, is the most fun to watch out of the three. The Hornets, I think, are the most likable watch team to watch this year. They are so dang exciting. But... Moving on from that, that is all I have for this episode. Thank you for tuning in. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram, Ballin' with Tyler Todd. Keep listening to the podcast. Follow on Spotify. Listen on all major platforms. And I will see you guys in the next episode on Monday. Peace.